evidence and answers. Was Noah's flood a global or local event? Where did the water come from? And where did it go after the flood? How could the human population grow so rapidly if all that remained after the flood was Noah's family? Is there scientific credibility to the biblical story of the flood? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and scientist Dr. Hugh Ross will conclude an interview they started the last time we were together, discussing the credibility of the biblical account of the Genesis flood. How many animals do you think were on board the ark, and is the ark big enough to fit that number of animals that were on board, or supposedly on board? Well, what you notice in the Genesis text, God said to Noah, this category of animals takes seven pair. So for some, 14. Others, he said, one pair is enough. And also, the text talks about Noah taking on board the basar, that's a Hebrew word that refers to the soulish animals that are in a bonded relationship with human beings. And so when we look at the animals that God wiped out, along with the ungodly people, it was all the soulish animals that were associated with those ungodly people. But likewise, God told Noah, the ones that have not been damaged by these reprobate humans, take on board either 14 or two of each. Now, with respect to the soulish animals, that refers to animals that desire a relationship with human beings. These are the animals that want to serve and please us. It includes all species of birds and mammals. And so I think we're looking at a minimum of a thousand different species that God had Noah take on board the ark. And uh, for some, there were 14, others it was just two. But I think that explains why the ark was that big. It had to be big enough uh, to be able to house a thousand different species of these soulish creatures for a period of a little more than a year, and also to be big enough to store all the food and water that these creatures would need for a whole year. And the ark is about the right size uh, for that uh, objective. Yes, now I guess one of the questions we have is, was Noah's flood a global worldwide catastrophe, or was it localized there to the Middle East? Well, it's worldwide, but worldwide needs to be interpreted in the context of how the Bible defines the term. Second Peter 2.5, it says the world of ungodly people was wiped out by the flood, which is basically making the point the flood was as extensive as the ungodly people were. And you see in Second Peter 3.5, it says the world of that time. The Greek phrase is cosmos tote, the world that existed at that time. And the reason why Peter attached the adjective tote to the Greek word cosmos is he was contrasting the world of Noah with the world of Rome, making the point it's not the same as the world of Rome. It was a different world. It was a world of the ungodly population. And that's one reason why I don't think the flood was global in extent, because humans were not living in Antarctica uh, or Greenland. Therefore, there'd be no need for God to flood Antarctica or Greenland. There'd be no ungodly people there, and none of the animals associated with those ungodly people uh, would have been there. Uh, for that reason, I don't think there were emperor penguins on board the ark. 
Given that humans had never visited Antarctica, those penguins would have not have been damaged by human reprobate behavior. But this is something you see in the book of uh, Judges and in the book of Joshua, is that there were cities that were filled with people who were so wicked that even their animals were dangerous and therefore had to be destroyed. And that's the same principle you see in Noah's flood. You can also go to the poetic books, the Psalms and Job and Proverbs. And these are books that, uh, like Genesis, take you through the account of creation. So Psalm 104, for example, gives additional details about the science of the first six days of creation. But when Psalm 104 addresses creation day three, that's in verses six, seven, and eight, it tells us that now that the earth has continents, where God transforms the world, the earth from a water world, where we now have not just a universal ocean, but oceans and continents coexisting, verse nine tells us, once continents are in place, never again will water cover the whole face of the earth. And you find that repeated in three other creation psalms, in Job uh, 38 and in Proverbs 8. So I think that gives us a strong biblical case that the flood was big enough to wipe out all ungodly people and all the animals associated with them, uh, but was not global in extent. Uh, Hugh, I think you give a good interpretation there, looking at several passages. But some may argue that and any interpretation that does not say a worldwide global flood is a breach of the doctrine of inerrancy. Because the Bible says in Genesis 7:19, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Could you address right. that? Yeah, sure, sure can do that. That's the most frequently cited text that younger creationists give to say that the flood of Noah had to be global in extent. But again, it's Hebrew, not English. And uh, you'll find a parallel passage in uh, Genesis chapter 8. And in Genesis 8, 5, how the waters are receding. Noah's on top of the ark. And as he looks out, he can see the distant hills and mountains. And the Hebrew word for mountain is identical to the Hebrew word for hill. It's one and the same word. But in verse 9, we have Noah releasing a dove, and the dove is flying over the waters, and from the dove's perspective, there's water over the whole face of the earth. It's the same phrase you see in Genesis 7:19, which tells me that in Genesis 7:19, Noah on top of the ark only could see water from one horizon to the other. All the hills and mountains in his region were covered with water. However, that does not imply that Mount Everest was covered in water, because that would be way beyond the horizon of a Noah. And in the context of the dove, we obviously have the dove flying lower over the waters than Noah would be on top of the ark. And as an astronomer and a physicist, I can tell you, even if all you have is, say, 20 feet of height advantage, you can see about three times farther away. Uh, your horizon limit is considerably greater. So, again, looking at the text to interpret the text. The other thing I would point out is that you see multiple words used for the earth in Genesis 7 and 8. The word arrest is used most frequently. That can refer to the entire planet. It can also refer to part of the planet. But there's one word you see in Genesis 8. It's the Hebrew word karabah, and it's a word that it never refers to the entire 
surface of the earth. It always refers to a portion. So the fact that that word shows up in Genesis 8 tells us that the flood waters were not global in extent. Nevertheless, the flood is universal. It's extensive enough to wipe out all of humanity except for those humans on board the ark. Yes, you bring up a good point. And even in, I believe, Luke 2.1, it says Caesar took a census of the entire earth. And I'm pretty sure the Romans weren't taking a census in India and China and things. So it follows well, what you're saying. More specific, yeah, more specific examples that you see in Kings, where it talks about how the kings and queens of the whole world came to Solomon to hear of his great wisdom. But if you read a few verses farther down, it tells us they came from as far away as uh, southern Arabia and Ethiopia. And so there it's making it really clear that when the text talks about the kings and queens of the whole world, it's the whole world of Solomon. And just like Joseph fed the whole world, he fed the whole world of the Egyptian empire. And so I think it's important that we realize the Bible is inspired to communicate to all generations of humanity, not just the generation of the contemporary author and not just the generation of we 21st century readers. I mean, from a 21st century perspective, when we talk about the whole world, we mean the entire planet. But people living 2,000 years ago uh, use the word the whole world to refer to much less than the world. Yeah, that's a very good point that you make, Neil. Now, you know, something that geologists often ask me is, where did the water come from? And then it, the Bible says it receded. Well, where did it go? Well, in my book, Navigating Genesis, I have a map of how extensive I believe the flood of Noah was, a lot bigger than just Mesopotamia, because it was during the last ice age. We're talking about the Persian Gulf region being inundated, large sections of Arabia and Persia, as well as all of Mesopotamia, and uh, maybe even as far as the Levant uh, was flooded uh, with water. But where did the water come from? Well, the text tells us of two sources, that you had this torrential rain for 40 days and 40 nights. also tells us water came up from below, and uh, underneath the Persian Gulf is a huge water aquifer. And during the last ice age, what is now the Persian Gulf was dry land, and so I think there was a tectonic event that pushed all of that underground water up to the surface. And the geologists have also pointed out that there's evidence for a berm at the mouth of the Persian Gulf, at what they call the Hermus area. And if that were to break, that would cause a massive rush of Indian Ocean water into the region. And then placing the flood during the last ice age, which I think the text demands, means that additionally, you could have a heating event that causes a huge amount of ice and snow on the surrounding mountains to melt and flood. And I think that would give you a catastrophic enough flood to wipe out all the animals and humans that were existing at that time. Because you'd have this huge uplift of water from below, the 40 days of torrential rain from above, the movement of Indian Ocean water cascading in, uh, plus a huge amount of melting snow and ice, there would have been no survivors except for those on board the ark. And likewise, that would explain why it took so long for the floodwaters to recede. That much water and that much ongoing melting snow and ice, it really will take almost 12 months for the floodwaters to recede away. 
Now, there's a popular theory out there, the water canopy theory, that there was this water canopy that engulfed the earth and then collapsed upon the earth during the time of the flood. How do you view that particular theory? Well, I'm in dialogue with a number of young earth creationists, uh, scientists, and theologians. If you actually read their literature, they're quite honest in saying none of our canopy theories work. If you're making a water vapor canopy, then the water vapor canopy would have to be 1,100 miles high above the surface of the earth. And uh, there, sunlight would cause that to be quickly dissipated into interstellar space. And so my young earth creationist scientist friends say, well, it can't be a vapor. Maybe it's liquid or maybe it's ice. But if it's liquid or ice, then the law of gravity is going to bring it crashing down right away. And so if you read their literature, they will say, we do not have a workable canopy theory. And there's good scientific evidence that such a canopy never existed. And if it did, it would have been a problem for life. And so I don't know of any serious young earth creationist uh, scholar today who holds to a canopy theory. Yes. Now, Hugh, there are others that argue that we find massive trees turned upside down on the top of mountains around the world, seashells found on the top of mountains like the Himalayas. So that, that's got to argue for a worldwide kind of flood. Could you address that? Yeah. No, I do address that in my book, Navigating Genesis. In fact, there's five chapters in that book on Noah's flood. And the reason why you see seashells and other marine fossils on top of the Himalayas is the Himalayan mountains are the result of the Indian subcontinent splitting away from Madagascar, racing towards Eurasia, and when it collided with Eurasia, it buckled up the ocean floor that was between Asia and the sub-Indian continent. Matter of fact, that collision is still ongoing. India right now is moving five centimeters a year north into Asia, which explains why the Himalayas get taller and taller with every year that goes by. So that explains all the seashells you see on top of uh, those mountains. And uh, you were mentioning the uh, turned upside down trees. Well, we see that with any catastrophic flood or volcanic eruption that happens today uh, where those things will take place. You can even see multiple layers side by side with a fossilized tree trunk. Again, that happens where you've got the multiple mud flows taking place over a short period of time. You're going to get those multiple layers. And none of that cited evidence for polystrate fossils is evidence uh, for a young earth or for a global flood. Yes. Now, Hugh, one of the questions people have is exactly where did the ark land? Now, no one really knows, but we kind of have an idea where it did, didn't it? Well, the biblical text tells us that it came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. It's important to notice that the plural, it does not say it came to rest on Mount Ararat, rather the mountains of Ararat. And Armenian scholars will tell you that that is a reference to a geographical region in the southeastern Turkey that covers about 100,000 square miles. And the mountains of Ararat actually come all the way down to the outskirts of Nineveh. So I tell people that given that the ark was made out of gopher wood, and given the size of the ark, nobody would have left the remains of Noah's ark alone. That wood would have been too valuable. And so I believe all the wood that was part of Noah's ark was raided by people after the flood 
uh, to build the cities of the plain. And you see that in Genesis 11. As you look at the genealogy from Noah uh, down to Abraham, we see that in Nimrod's time, several cities were built in the Mesopotamian plain. I would surmise that virtually all, in fact, probably all, that gopher wood was used to build those cities uh, or to build other towns around them. So if you want to find the remains of Noah's Ark, I think the best place to look would be the ashes of Nineveh. But Nineveh was burned to the ground several times, so it's going to be difficult to actually look at those ashes and determine if any of them are from Noah's Ark. Yeah, you know, and another question that people ask is where did those people come from? I mean, if the whole population was decimated by the flood and it was just Noah and his three sons and their wives, how did the earth get repopulated so quickly? Well, I think it got repopulated quickly because God basically told Noah, do not tolerate murder. The reason for this flood is people were killing one another. In fact, humanity was in danger of self-extermination. So God gave Noah in chapter 9 of Genesis a stern commandment that murder must be restrained. Given that the murder rate was a lot less and people still had some lingering capacity to live a long time, you get a rapid repopulation of the earth. I have a table in Navigating Genesis showing how fast the population grows if you've got people reproductive for, say, 400 years of their lifespan. You know, they can have a lot of children. You see that in Genesis 5, that Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters besides Cain, Abel, and Seth. In fact, I calculate conservatively that Adam and Eve must have had, you know, a minimum of 120 children. And so, with that kind of birthing capability, you get a very rapid population explosion. Yeah, that's a good explanation there. You know, Hugh, as we're unfortunately having to wind down our show, how do you keep the balance between science and the scriptures? On one hand, we don't want to be Christians who say, my interpretation is correct and any scientific evidence that's contrary, I'm just going to ignore, you know, or say it's some kind of conspiracy or anything. But on the same hand, we don't want to go too far and say, well, we're going to understand the Bible through the lens of science. Uh, how do you keep that balance? Well, you see the two books doctrine uh, in Psalm 19 and Romans 1 as codified in the Belgic Confession, Article 2, that God has given us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Both are utterly trustworthy and reliable. And with the book of scripture, it's 66 books. With the book of nature, it's several dozen different scientific disciplines. And I think one problem we face in the 21st century, we over-specialize. We have theologians that are expert in just one or two books. We have scientists that are expert in only one sub-discipline. And therefore, I think what God is encouraging us to do is to integrate. We're not only commanded to take the Bible literally, we're to take it consistently. And so we know we've made a faulty interpretation if our interpretation of Hebrews is in contradiction with our interpretation of Genesis. All 66 books are the inspired, inerrant word of God. So look for consistency in your interpretation. I say the same thing to scientists. You know, I have a lot of people who I know who are evolutionary biologists that say it's not enough to look at paleontology and, uh, you know, genetics. You also have to look at astrophysics. The sun is not the same. It gets brighter and brighter as time goes on. 
we need to take that into account. And when we do, we realize naturalistic explanations for the history of life are scientifically flawed. And so we need to integrate across all the scientific disciplines, not just one or two. And then if we see a problem between our interpretation of the scientific disciplines and our interpretation of the different books that make up scripture, then we know we've made a mistake. There's a faulty interpretation somewhere. And so that should encourage us to dig deeper and to be more comprehensive in studying those two books to ferret out our faulty human interpretation. The problem is not with either book. The problem is always with the human interpretation. And especially, we'll never know everything that the book of nature is teaching. We'll never know everything that the book of scripture is teaching. And my experience is, whenever I've seen an apparent conflict between nature and scripture, it motivates me to dig deeper. And every time I dig deeper, the so-called conflict gets resolved. Yeah, I think you make a great point. It's not the Bible that's in error. It's our interpretation of it that can be in error. Right. And so, yeah, I think you make a great point. We look at our interpretation to make sure we got it right or that there's no possibility of any other kind of interpretation. That's what you're saying, right? Well, God can't contradict himself. Mm-hmm. He's truthfully revealed himself through both of these books. And so we see something that doesn't quite fit. That should be a motivation for us to dig deeper and learn more. And if we do that, and I've lived long enough to see that every time I run into what I think is a conflict or a problem, if you do a sufficient study, it gets resolved. And incidentally, that's an encouragement. If I see progressive resolution, that tells me I'm on the pathway to truth. Yeah, so Hugh, as we conclude, I'll ask this final question here. You know, is, do you see scientific credibility to this biblical account of Noah and the flood? Very definitely. I mean, we see stories about uh, a flood that wiped all of humanity in virtually every culture of the world. There has to be some truth to explain why these stories are ubiquitous. And uh, you know, taking the perspective on the flood, that it was big enough to wipe out all of humanity, all the animals associated with them, uh, the date, which I think is most reasonable for the flood, that fits the scientific evidence perfectly. That's great. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Hugh Ross, founder and president of Reasons to Believe, a great organization. Hugh, before we close, why don't you tell us about Reasons to Believe and also the book that you've been referring a lot to during this interview. Paul, my wife and I founded Reasons to Believe 36 years ago, basically to show skeptics that there is a testable biblical creation model. You can put it to the test. It makes predictions. It makes predictions more successfully than other competing models. And so every day we're posting stuff on our reasons.org website showing us that the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we get for the supernatural handiwork of the Creator. People can get free chapters of any of the books I've written simply by going to reasons.org slash Ross. And that includes the book Navigating Genesis that we've been talking about. Free chapter, reasons.org slash Ross. That's reasons.org. Tremendous website. I'm there all the time. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Hugh Ross there, president of Reasons to Believe. So, Hugh, thanks for being with us again here on Evidence and Answers. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. We've run 
run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucheran. <laughs>